So, uh, as we start off uh, this morning, I want to tell you about um, something that happened to me this weekend. My, my wife and daughters went antiquing. You understand what that's like. You're like, you never know what they're going to come back with. And my wife came back with this. And not just a picture of a dog. This is a two-foot by three-foot picture of a German shepherd on velvet, right? Um, I was a little uh, surprised uh, to say anything because this is not normally what my wife would pick out to buy, just being honest, right? This is not her style. This is not what she would pick, but a two-foot by three-foot picture of a dog. And it's not ugly, but it's verging on ugly, okay? Just from my perspective. I, 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 I'm just going to say my opinion on it. It's, it's that way. And, she's, and I'm like, what are we doing with a two-foot by three-foot picture of a German shepherd? We don't even own a German shepherd. We don't really like German shepherds. Why do we have a German shepherd that's going to hang on our walls? And she's like, well, it's not for us. It's for my cousin, Jana. You know, she likes pictures of dogs. She paints pictures of dogs. So I got it for her. I'm like, oh. That makes way more sense, okay. Um, and this morning, we are going to look at some things that are uh, relatively ugly to look at, not because they are uh, uh, things that uh, are easy to look at, but they're ugly, they're, they're difficult, they're hard, and whether you think that's ugly or beautiful, maybe you love German shepherds, I don't know, okay. The things that we're going to look at in the text are legitimately ugly. They're legitimately difficult to, to, to read about, to think about, to consider. There are going to be some things in the text that could trigger you, that could be like, ah, and just take you away from right here listening to me, listen, thinking about God's word, and pull you back into memories or experiences or uh, things that you know about that you're, you just wrestle with and you can't get away from. My hope this morning is that as we look at these difficult, hard passages, that you'll, in a sense, ultimately see how they fit. And they help you to grab a better picture of who God is and what he's about. In Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon says that the, the, the respect or the fear of God is the foundation of wisdom. That is, that we understand who God is, and we understand a little bit more about what he's about, then we respect him better. And part of respecting who God is is respecting the fact that God can, God can and does judge sin and evil. When we forget who God is, those are the times when we usually have no awareness of the sin in our lives and its consequences. Psalm 14, 1 puts it this way, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then it goes on to say, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. It's not that we do when we're foolish, that we do everything possibly that's foolish, that's evil. It's just that we do, we do and we run into these patterns of life and when we have no awareness of God and we have no awareness of sin and its consequences, we get caught up in things that are destructive. Not only that, but when we are, don't respect God and it, properly, we desire what the world has until we remember that it's all passing away, right? In, in 1 John 2, verse 17, it says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We think that getting what we want is the most important thing or the greatest thing in, in life for us. That if we can just get what we want, if we can have what we want, then our lives will be good. And we forget that the world is passing away, that there are more things than what we see to desire and want in life. Also, when we don't consider God's judgment, we lose hope. Because we look at evil and we think that it's going to win. We don't see a way out until we remember that God judges evil. 1 John 3 puts it this way, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. But if you, aren't, if you don't remember that Christ is going to return and set things right and judge evil, then you lose hope. And we're going to see in these stories this morning people losing hope, people acting on their own desires, and people seeking their own wisdom and their own plans for their life, and ultimately destroying not only themselves but others. This morning, I want you to increase your respect for God's judgment. And as you increase your respect for God's judgment, you will gain wisdom for life, you will increase your desire for God's mercy, and you will gain hope because of God's restoration. So that's where I'm headed this morning as we look at several passages, well, several, a couple of chapters this morning. And because there are several chapters, I'm not going to read every verse, okay? One, I don't have time. And two, there are certain things in the text that, that are maybe appropriate in certain areas but aren't always appropriate uh, in a mixed company, so to speak, to think and consider together in detail. So I'm going to hit the highlights. But I really, uh, in, in doing so, Again, I'm going to remind you, this is an arc that starts in 2 Samuel 9 and goes all the way through 2 Samuel 20. And the arc really is designed to be read together. You're going to see a theme of wisdom playing through here, and so you're going to have this idea of, are people being wise or being foolish, even as God is using the term wisdom in the Bible, but he's doing it intentionally to say, is this wise or foolish? And again, this is written probably by the prophets for the kings and their sons to consider the fact that God is no respecter of persons and that there are lessons to be learned from David's story for those who are in charge of Israel's community to help them think about what it means to rule well and to consider legitimately the respect and fear of God so that they rule well. We, we could wish that the rulers in our country would read passages like this and consider how to act in wisdom. So that's setting up this passage together. And I want to look, first of all, at God's judgment through unchecked desire. God's judgment through unchecked desire. And before we get into the passage, I want to remind us of what God's judgment looked like and ask the question, why do we deserve God's judgment? So let's go, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn briefly to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, where God talks about why his judgment is in operation. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Romans chapter 1, starting verse 20. If you don't have your Bible, you can just look up there. And I'll read from up there because I can see it better. It says, For his invisible attributes, as God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. He's saying if you look around, you realize that this didn't, this in a sense couldn't have happened by chance. Something had to cause this to be. And the answer to that is, so they, were, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So just, again, the, the beginning of evil in this sense is that we look at, what, at our lives, and instead of being grateful for what we have and realizing it comes from someone greater than ourselves, we tend to not operate that way and think about life in different terms. And this is where he, they say, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they become, in claiming to be wise, there's this theme again, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God 
saying, saying, the things that are great in this world isn't that God is beyond us, that he's invisible, that he's unimaginably powerful, and that he obviously cares about us enough to put us in a world that, that we can live in and enjoy. Instead, we think the, the, the incredible things in life are the things that we can see, that we can, that we can say, look, this is amazing, and I'm going to make that what I can see with my eyes, what's ultimate. And therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And here's that key phrase that I'm getting at here when we talk about God's judgment, is that God gave them up. It's not typically, God does act in judgment in the sense of, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something against someone, I'm going to oppose someone here, I'm going to do something to constrain them like the police might do. Typically, God's judgment is a reminder, in that sense, that God as Father has made this world, he's blessed this world, and what he does is instead of, in his judgment, is he just starts to withdraw and say, oh, you want this? Well, you don't know what you're asking for, but here you go. If this is what you want, you can have it, but it's not really what you're going to want. Because I created this world, I love you, I know it's best for you. And so, God, instead of God actively going, God's judgment is not usually actively like, okay, you know, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to do this to you as a result. It's more God just withdrawing, stepping back, and saying, if you want it, have at it. You don't realize what you're asking for. Think of a father with, with a child. The, child the, the father provides food for the child. He provides housing for the child. He provides a, a peaceful environment for the child. He does all of these good things for, for his children. And they decide, well, we don't want the father's love. We want to do what, whatever we please. And the father's like, oh, okay, well, then I'm going to take, I'm going to step back and let you provide for yourself and do what you think is best, and see how that goes. And that's sobering to look at. It's not easy to look at that, but, but this is what the Bible says is why we deserve God's judgment in that sense, not because we're like, we, we, God's like so upset with us because we've hurt him in some way. It's because we desire to do our own thing, and God's like, well then, I, I was providing for you, but I'll stop and see if you can provide for yourself. And one of the things God does for us is he satisfies us. He satisfies our desires. Psalm 37 puts it this way, another great psalm that talks about living in God's faithfulness. It says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He's saying, God's going to not only give you desires, but then satisfy those desires in a good way. But when we reject God, he steps back. Again, to put it, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worships and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we're going to see, if we turn back to, to first, 2 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to see, after 2 Samuel 12, God is not mentioned again for several chapters. It's like God just steps back from the narration. He's like, okay, I'm not going to get involved, and let's see how this goes. And he's already told David how this is going to go because he says, the sword is not going to depart from your from your house. You chose your path. You decided I want to build my house my own way and, and therefore I'm not going to be blessing it. And let's see how that goes. And unfortunately we see the, this happen through, first of all, sexual desire unchecked. Notice chapter 13 and verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. Okay, so just to understand the, the, the framing of this, Absalom's actually the key, the, the key figure in the story, but he doesn't really enter actively into the story until a little bit later. 
okay? But we get the idea here that Amnon, you know, a step, you know, a half-brother of Absalom loves his half-sister, Tamar. And it says, and Amnon was so tormented that that he made himself ill because of Tam- his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So this would be David's nephew, right? Talks to Jonadab, and it says, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. That actually, again, the word in Hebrew is translated wise. It's, 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 it's not always the good word for wise, but it's the word wise, and that's part of the question here is how wise is Jonadab. But he's crafty. He can get stuff done, evidently. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I, have, I love Tamar, my, bro- my brother's Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said to him, Lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Jonadab gives him a plan. He's a crafty guy. He gives him a plan. And uh, so Jonadab, uh, Amnon does that, tricks Tamar, and ultimately rapes her. And then it says at the end of that, it says, then Amnon hated, Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Again, I'm not going to read the details. Tamar, Tamar tries. She gives a lot of, tries to solve the problem in a lot of other ways, but Amnon seeks his own path, wants what he wants, and ultimately realizes what's ironic about this passage is that he doesn't actually get what he wants. He thinks he wants it, and when he has it, he realizes he doesn't want it at all. couple of things I want to talk about here, just some questions to think about as we consider this passage. Is it always God's judgment when evil happens? When we're getting into this passage, is it always God's judgment when evil happens? The answer to that is no, okay? You see that from Job, you see that from Hebrews, you see that from a variety of passages that evil happens not just because God is withdrawing, but because evil is evil, But we, what we do realize is when evil happens, that evil always tempts us to doubt God's goodness. Evil always tempts us to doubt God's goodness. Because we read a story like this and we say to ourselves, how could a good God allow something like this? You should ask that question, but the answer is not in God himself. The answer is in evil. Evil always tempts us to doubt God's goodness. It wants to take that away from us. Even though David had opened up his family to sexual sin and reaped a deadly reward, we doubt God's goodness rather than doubting David and evil. Another question we could ask ourselves is, why does God allow evil to others because of evil we do? Why does God allow this evil in David's family, even though David committed the evil? And I don't know a complete answer to that. But I can at least point out part of the answer to that. And it's, it's found ultimately in how God looks at evil himself. I'm reminded of a passage in Ephesians 4, just to use this as an illustration of what I'm trying to get at. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, it says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He's saying, he's saying, when we speak to one another, we should speak in such a way that we're giving grace. We're building up people. We're not tearing them down. And then he says on top, the next verse says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We say, well, how do I grieve the Holy Spirit of God? If it's saying don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, how do I not do that? Well, it's in, in the context, it's just saying you grieve the Holy Spirit when you talk and cut down people and you corrupt them and you are, are unkind. You use words that, that don't build up. And the point is this in the passage is, if God loves the people that he's made and he sees someone hurting the people that he's made, it grieves him. He's upset with it. If, if God is upset when evil hurts 
the people he's made. One of the ways he teaches us about his care for his people is by having, when we commit evil like David did, having that evil touch the people that we love. Because, you know, what we, what we want to do, again, this is how evil works, is it says, I want to, to do my own thing and I want to choose the consequences, right? I want to do what I want, but I, but I don't want it to affect the people I love. If it affects other people, that's fine, <laughs> but not the people I love. And God's like, well, that's not the way evil works. When evil is in operation, it affects the people you love because it's evil. Again, it's, it's, this is, evil tempts us to doubt God's goodness rather than step back and doubt evil's promises. Like, oh, it'll be okay. Evil's like, you can do what you want and, and you can, it'll be fine. And we don't doubt those promises. We doubt God's goodness. Like, why would God allow this? And what's, go, why is, wait a second, God's not doing this. Either evil is or you are. <laughs> You're choosing this path, not God. And he pulls back to help you see that he's the one who's been providing the goodness, and he's the one who's providing the peace, and he's the one who's been providing the love. Another thing that's in this passage Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but that's going through here. You see it multiple times if you read the passage that, that Tamar is not listened to. She, she pleads with Amnon, don't do this, and Amnon doesn't listen to her. She pleads with, she, she tells Absalom, her brother, hey, this is what happened. And instead of listening to his sister, he's like, don't worry about it. He doesn't listen to her. And when, just kind of a, a point of wisdom, when we're dealing with evil, a really good thing to do is to listen to evil's victims. Not for the purpose of just whatever they say goes, but for the purpose of just listening to them. They need to be heard. And here, and this, is, this is a point that's going to get played out in the larger story of the arc of the story, okay? But this is actually a really important point one of the things, that, one of the ways we know that evil is operating and, and we're not, God has not, is when we stop listening to those who are hurting. When we start saying to people who are hurting in our society, well, we don't care. Or, I know what's best. <laughs> or, I know what's good for you. Are you God? But that's the that's the path that Absalom takes. You can read it along again, 2 Samuel 13. Uh, starting in verse 20, Absalom, her brother, said to her, has Absalom, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon, Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. This gets me to point number two, God's judgment through injustice revenged. It says that David is angry, but he doesn't, doesn't say that David does anything about it. We don't know exactly what happened, but obviously Absalom didn't think it was enough. So Absalom, it says, hates his brother. And it, so we're going to go now for a period of about 10 years in the reign of David. And we see two of these years here. It says, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the, the king and his servants go with your servants. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not, Olga, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, though he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said, oh, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So you, two years, the hatred in Amn and Absalom stays hidden. He doesn't say anything bad to Amnon. He treats Amnon like nothing's wrong, but he's got this hatred that's burning in his soul. 
And he sets this up. He's like, okay, I've got to have this sheep sure thing. And we find out a little bit later that Jonadab's involved in this again. Because Jonadab knows what's going to happen. And he sets it up so that, convinces his dad to let his brothers come with him to the sheep shearing where they have, of course, a festival at the work that was accomplished and all the, in a sense, the, they got done. And at dinner time, he tells his servants, when I, when I give you the signal, kill Amnon. And his servants do that. The brothers flee. And as, like rumors go, what gets back to the capital is not Amnon's dead, but all of David's sons are dead by Absalom. And Jonadab's like, no, I, that wasn't the plan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the plan was just to kill Amnon, and uh, that's what we're going to find out. And the sons flee back. They find, uh, David finds out, and they weep over Amnon's death, even as they, um, Absalom, it says, verse 27, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahihud, king of Geshar, and David mourned for his son, that is Amnon, day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. So Absalom here completes justice on his brother. You say, well, it's justice, he got revenge. But the, 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 whole, the, the whole point, in, one of the key points all the way through the, the, the law and the Old Testament is that God is trying to replace this revenge killing. Well, you, you did this injustice to me, so I'm going to commit this to you. He's trying to replace that whole cycle of revenge and honor killings and all those kind of things with, with justice, true justice, wise justice. But here Absalom goes back and is like, well, my sister was raped. I'm going to I'm going to kill my stepbrother for doing so, and I'm just in doing that because no one else is solving the problem, and he goes and does it. And I just want to remind you again of Romans 12, 12. It says, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is ultimately saying, when, when we doubt whether human justice can be achieved, we need to remember that God can achieve complete justice. And Absalom ignores that, and instead creates this cycle of revenge and hatred that keeps going. And so you see, in two of David's sons, David's sin repeated. Not because they have to repeat David's sin, but simply because they, they act on their desires and God has withdrawn. He's pulled back, right? The, the sexual desires, God didn't, God didn't stop that. He, left, he just, he's, Amnon did his thing. Absalom did his thing. And part of the lesson is beware of, of getting what you want. <laughs> beware that your desires, that you think what's best for your life, are going to satisfy your life and make you, make you happy and satisfied and everything's going to be perfect without going to God. And I know that's hard for us in America to grasp totally because we live in, in a wealthy society where basically if I think I need something, I will go buy it and I am fine. And my life consists of, in a sense, going on Amazon, like finding a need in my life, going on Amazon, buying it, having it delivered within two or three days, right? And I, my life's good again because I found a need, I solved it, I'm good. And God's like, wait a second, is that all there is to life? Is it not knowing me? Is it not loving me and loving others? Is there not more to life than this? But we're not done yet, unfortunately. And then point number three is God's judgment through incomplete reconciliation. God's judgment through incomplete reconciliation. It says here at the end of chapter 13, and the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, in the English translations, you get this emphasis that seems to indicate that, that 
He's like, okay, Amnon's dead, but I've got my son Absalom. I wish we could be reconciled. And you get this idea that he's just, we don't know why, but David doesn't seek to reconcile with Absalom. But in the Hebrew, it's more ambiguous than that. Because you could translate the Hebrew, and the spirit of the king longed to go out against Absalom. That is, go get him and give justice to him. But he didn't because he was mourning Amnon since he was dead. Okay? You see the difference in emphasis? I don't know. Okay? The story, as it proceeds, Joab attempts to step in and solve the problem. But you're left ambiguous. Is it, is, is it because David really wanted to do something and just wouldn't step out? Maybe he was afraid of, the, of what it would look like? Or, it, it's ambiguous. And frankly, if you ever lose a child, I think, especially in unjust scenarios, I think you can understand why it would be ambiguous. Because where you're just stuck emotionally in that sense. And Joab steps into that situation in chapter 14. It says, Now Joab the son of Zariah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. That is, again, it's, it's ambiguous as to which side of that actually it means. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought, him from, brought, brought from there a wise woman. Okay? So again, the use, the use, wise is used again here. It says, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who's been mourning many days for the dead and go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab initiates what it seems like a reconciliation. He's like, we need to reconcile this. And the, 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 if you read between the lines in the story, you, 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 you kind of get the idea that Job's motivation is like this. Well, if Absalom, who's now the oldest son a living, is, is out, out on the outs with the king, when the king dies, you're going to have potentially a civil war scenario because Absalom could say, hey, I deserve to be heir, but I was, I, I was driven away even though I created justice. And David, whoever David's picked to be king, is going to, is going to, they're going to be civil war. And I don't want civil war. I've already been through one with, with Saul. I don't want, it, want that. I want this solved. You get, that's the kind of motivation you get from Joab. He's trying to solve the problem. And he uses this woman, and he creates a scenario. And he, he creates a scenario where this woman goes and says, hey, my two sons were in the field. They had an argument. No one was there to break it up. And one accidentally killed the other in a in a heat of the moment, so to speak. And now my, my in-laws are, are, want to have justice, but I don't, I don't want to have, uh, but if, to justice means, if justice means I'm losing my son, then I don't want that because my son is the one person who can care for me in my old age. And David's like, I understand the problem. I'll make sure no one bothers you. And she's like, I don't trust that. I, 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 I need some reassurance. He's like, I promise that I'll, I'll take care of this. And she's like, in a sense, she's like, I don't trust that because you're not doing that with Absalom either. That's what she, <laughs> she doesn't say that directly. She's not that bold. But she's like, but if you're not doing it for Absalom, then how can I trust that you're going to do it for me? And David gets the point, and he's like, did Job put you up to this? And, he's, and she's like, yes, you, he's, you're totally wise. You get it. And uh, David ultimately lets Absalom come back. Here's one point I want to draw out in this process where Job, you say, well, this is good. He's trying to resolve the situation. The problem is he's doing it in his own wisdom by manipulating the situation. There's a, there's a huge difference, right, even in our law system, between heat of the moment, somewhat in a manslaughter scenario, and cold-blooded murder, right? There's a huge difference. But she's appealing to his emotions about her situation in order to get him to relent and solve the problem. And unfortunately, in our world today, that happens a lot too. We appeal to emotion and empathy. Think back to the height of the days 
when masks and COVID were, were an issue, right? You had, on one hand, you had these stories about uh, children coming home and from school and infecting their grandparents with COVID and feeling terrible about that because masks would have helped with that. And then on the other side, you have these stories of small business owners losing their, their businesses because all these lockdowns are hurting small businesses. And whichever side of that divide you fall on, those emotions played to your sense of justice and were like, hey, you should, you should feel a certain way about this because you feel this way and you should insist on justice for this person because of it. The problem with that kind of emotion, emotism where emotion drives our sense of right and wrong is that, again, true justice can't prevail. You can't base justice simply on emotion. Emotion should be involved. And that's why in this story you have to ask the question, she's called a wise woman and Job's trying to, to, to solve a problem, but is this truly wise? How do we know that? Well, David brings Solomon back, but what, what happens? It's not truly resolved. Notice verse 24. 23 says, So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Awesome, he's back. Isn't this great? And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Let me ask you, is that reconciliation? No. That's getting him back in town, but that's not reconciliation. I don't know if you, if you we all have potentially family members where you don't see them because there's a problem in the family, but that's, that's the point is when you don't see them, there's a problem in the family. This is not reconciliation. And again, you get the sense of God stepping back, right? Why? Because God is the one who brings peace. God is the one who brings reconciliation. And if we try to manipulate things into getting reconciled without God in the picture, we fail. It creates more problems. When we try to manipulate our fears away, what Job was doing, and when we passively don't reconcile with others, what David was doing, worse things are on the horizon. And we aren't pleading for God's mercy and help. Do you, do you see the difference here? I mean, we saw it earlier in First Samuel with David. David's going to God, pleading with God. We have multiple songs. God, reconcile, work this out, provide for me, help me. Is David doing it now? Not that we can see. And one of the problems, again, the problems in our world is we look around and we think, oh, we, need, we need reconciliation, we need peace, we need people to come together, we need to live at peace with one another, but we're not asking God for it. And God's like, Okay, I guess you can try to create it on your own, but since I'm the one who ultimately provides it, I'm not sure how you're going to do that. Last thing. I know this is hard, so I'm trying to move through it quick in some ways. But it's good to see the ways that when we don't, when we try to do life on our own, when God steps back, just life doesn't work. Notice the end of chapter 14, verse 26. Sorry, 25. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Imagine that being said of you, right? Yeah. From the top of my head, the bottom of my feet... I'm perfect. I'm a perfect physical specimen. And when he cut his hair, when he cut the hair of his head for the end of every year, he used to cut it, so he'd wait a whole year, and then he cut it at the end of the year. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. He had a full 
head of hair. This guy is handsome, and he is awesome to look at, evidently, is the point. And there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. He's like, I'm going to remind people of my injustice by naming my daughter after my sister. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So, so then da- so Absalom tries to solve this problem. He's like, I, I, I'm, I, I'm sick of living this situation. And he does a power grab. In a sense, he, he lights up Joab's field. A forced Joab come to talk to him and says, solve this problem. Joab goes to the king and they ultimately bring Absalom back. And he's now in the presence of the king and it's reconciled, right? But it's not. Verse 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Hey, he's impressive. This guy is somebody. And yet, you ask the question, what has he done except have his servants kill his brother? You see, the, the appearance is not all that it cracks up to be. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. And Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designed by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would not. He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. He wouldn't let him bow to him is the point. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. God's judgment through stolen loyalty. Absalom's like, you know what? There's no justice in this land. My father's being passive about justice. Well, I'm going to I want to set this right. I'm going to be king. And not only that, but he promises justice. So you have, I just put it this way. God lets wicked leaders rise when we focus on outward appearances and personal injustices and when we believe easy promises about justice. You, you could see it in our situation too, right? People start making promises about justice, like (laughs) the people in charge, they can't solve it, but if you let me be in charge, I'll solve it. And it steals the hearts of the people. In this sense, in a sense, Absalom is kind of like an anti-Christ. You get it? He's trying to replace God's appointed. So he appears to care about justice, but actually it's hatred, right? He didn't want justice for Amnon. He wanted to solve his own hatred. He appears to want reconciliation, but actually it's a power grab. And he appears to promise justice, but actually it's betrayal of God's anointed king. When God withdraws, when he's like, you're trying to run your country without me to provide loyalty, people are going to promise justice and steal loyalty all over the place. Can, can we just pause for a minute here and just think, I don't, to me, I can see a lot of this happening in our country, right? You can see God stepping back and being like, trying to do it on your own. But maybe you can see it in your own life. Maybe you're kind of thinking about, man, I, I, I've been trying to do life on my own and man, it does seem like God stepped back. God's not involved. God doesn't care about what is going on. And again, to reemphasize this, when it feels like God's withdrawn doesn't mean that God is judging. Sometimes God steps back in order for us to learn something more about him. He's not doing it out of uh, displeasure with us. He's doing it because he wants to (laughs) do something in us. But if the Holy Spirit is teaching you and prompting you and saying, yeah, yeah, you need to repent. The, the beauty of this is the mercy is available through repentance. You see, that's, we have the picture. Is there a picture again? Uh, let's see. 
No, no picture this time. Let's go back to the picture. Uh, you, you, you remember the picture, right? That dog? Can't forget it. It's so horrible. No, I'm just kidding. We see God's justice as, but it's in a, it's in a com- more full picture. You see, if I didn't, if I thought that dog picture was going to hang in my house, <laughs> I'm not sure what I would do, honestly. I'd be tempted to, in the middle of the night, go take it and, you know, it would disappear, you know. But if it's, if it's for Amy's cousin, awesome, great, it fits. You see, and we look at these scenes of judgment, and we see these scenes of sadness, and we, when we cry out, we cry out, why did this have to happen? What, what could have been better here? Why did this, why did this take place? God, what, what's going on? And it reminds us that we need a king, not that can just go back to the way things were. Like, God, I wish we could just go back, go back before Bathsheba, go back before it and start over and, and do it right this time. We, we need a king who can actually conquer evil, who actually can do good and take evil and turn it into good. That's what we need. David didn't just need that. Absalom didn't just need that. We need that too. We look at the choices we've made in the world that we live in, and we think, how is it possible to restore my life? How is it possible to, 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 that things could get better? And the thing is, we need a king who can conquer evil, not just take things back to the way thing, they were. And part of this story is told for us to long for a better king than David. A better king who doesn't just take care of enemies and make the land at least a better place a little bit, but who can actually conquer evil when it raises its ugly head. And we find that king in Jesus, right? Jesus is that king who, in the face of God's judgment, is clear. God's judgment is real. But then takes our place, dies in our place, and conquers evil for us. So that at the end of time, Revelation says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We have a king who will conquer evil. He will. Not only that, but he hasn't, since he hasn't done it yet, he gives us the Holy Spirit to comfort us and help us in the midst of our weeping and crying over evil. The question is, he puts it this way, behold, I am making all things new. The question is, which way are you looking? Are you looking back at evil and seeing all of its consequences and all of its problems and all of its heartache? Are you looking forward to your king and his return and thinking, you know what? I can't conquer evil. I can't make things right. This world can't make things right, but we have a king who has gone before us, who has set the way, who paid the price, so the evil and injustice and heartache and lack of reconciliation could all be turned into good. And we say, how is that possible? <laughs> That's the point. Without God, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible.
Will you trust that? Will you look to your king? Don't look back. Don't wish for the way things were. Don't wonder, well, what if? (laughs) That will paralyze you. Look to your king. Look for your king. And trust in your king. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, we know in life there are things way more ugly than a picture of an ugly dog. (laughs) Things that break our hearts. Things that cause us to wake up in the middle of the night. Things that cause us to to weep and to cry and cry out, hopefully to you, saying, how long or how, what's next? How, what do we do? Help us to see our king, our true king. Not the ones that fail us. Not the ones that deceive us. Not the ones that use us. But Jesus King of kings and Lord of lords who rescued us from sin and death has given us of you, God, through your Holy Spirit to comfort and strengthen us and to one day when we stand before you, you will wipe away the tears from our eyes and you will, as it says, work out everything together for good to those who love God. Lord, we look forward to that day when our questions are answered, when our heartaches are eased, when we experience your love and peace in full. But today, help us to look to our King and see your love and see your peace and walk by faith. Not giving in to our desires, not thinking that our desires are the sum total of our life, but looking to you, the one who can deliver us from sin and death. We thank you for our King, in your Son's name.